If you uh, have the Version app, there's an event in there, and it's a Bible app. If you don't have a Bible app and you want one, it's called, uh, the best one's called Version, and you can click on the little uh, menu button down on the right-hand corner, and there's an event that the Grove sets up each week, and it has the scripture for, uh, that we'll be talking about in just a second in there, and all sorts of different announcements, things that are going on in the church. It's the best app for engaging with your scripture uh, right on your phone. Uh, we are going to uh, talk about restarting this year, and uh, I think uh, restarting, if you've, you've experienced this in your life when you're playing one of your kids' video games, because you're a grown adult, you don't play video games, uh, but um, <laughs> the reason I love video games and the reason you love video games, I think it's kind of twofold. Uh, you get to try things that you've never done before, and legally you never could. Right? Like, I'm playing a game right now with my kids because I'm not the kind of person that plays video games on their own for hours after everyone's gone to bed. But uh, I play online now, too, and my son taught me how to have headphones, and I make friends, like all these friends. And uh, these are my only friends that use a lot of cuss words. Uh, so it's, it's kind of an entertaining part of my life. I'm like, wow, people talk like this all the time. But, um, but I play this game where I get to shoot rocket launchers at people. Uh, and I've never done that, and legally I probably never will be allowed to, right? Like, who knows where this country's going? Maybe someday, but uh, there is, uh, I get to do this. And I think that's one part of what we love about video games. I think the other part we love is uh, when you fail, you just get to start all over again. Like, there's nothing that stops you. Like, if you're doing a car racing game and you crash, you hit, like, two buttons, and you get to start all over, and it's like you never failed in the first place, and you have the experience of failing before so you know what to avoid so you don't fail again. Uh, I think that's something super attractive to us just in anything in life. I think that is attractive because that is what God put in us and what God offers us. And I know this might be a big stretch, but I'm comparing why we love video games to why we love Jesus, and I'm not saying video games are God, all right? Uh, but the feeling that you have of a fresh start is just one of the best feelings in the world. Uh, waking up in the morning and being like, hey, this is a new day, and yesterday, like, there might, I might have blown yesterday. Like, yesterday might be a terrible day, but today I get to start again. I get to start at zero. I think that's why we like the start of new school years or the start of new years and, the, and we do things like, hey, this time when I play the game, I'm going to play it this way or I'm going to try, uh, try out this move or try out this trick or try out this strategy with my life. Uh, and we just kind of, um, like sociologists would call this game theory, our lives into this kind of restart uh, feeling. When Jesus was on this earth, uh, he lived and at the end of life, he died, and God hit reset. This is such a, like, heretical thing to say. But it's like Jesus lost his video game, and then he hit reset, and he started all over <laughs> uh, when he rose from the dead. So it's different. But anyways, I just thought that was funny to say. Uh, <laughs> when Jesus uh, died on the cross, and he really all the way physically died, and then came back to life in a physical minute, like his physical life was renewed, uh, or brought back, uh, Jesus changed everything for everyone. And so when we see in our Bibles, there's this transition from, in our Bibles, there's like subtitles. So the first half is called Old Testament. The second half is called New Testament. 
there is this shift that happens when, and the shift is when Jesus uh, dies and comes back to life in his resurrection. His resurrection changes everything. So that in the Old Testament or in the past ways of, of the way that things worked between the people and their relationship with God, is that God would, uh, was a bit uh, like God was in a place. They had a temple, and in the middle of the temple was the holiest of the holy places, and the glory of God lived there. And you don't go in there, and probably you don't, like a very select number of people even get close to it. You probably have to stay in the, like two or three rooms away from it. Um, but when Jesus comes, and through his death and his resurrection, it makes uh, the imminent presence of God in our lives possible. Jesus actually used words like, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power and, and these things and these things and these things. Things that people would only receive for specific moments or for specific tasks in the Old Testament is now through Jesus' death and resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit afterwards. This is like Acts chapter 2, uh, Matthew chapter 28, Acts chapter 1 as well. The Holy Spirit comes upon us and you actually have the particular presence of God in your life at all times. A person who is a follower of Jesus, uh, who is, like the Bible uses the words, born again, which means hit restart on your life, and you're trying a new strategy in life, and the new strategy is complete surrender to God's ways and God's will, and, and an ever-increasing surrender as we grow and learn the things that we're holding on to and not letting God have in our lives, which is true for all of us. As we grow and, and learn about ourselves, we're able to surrender more. When a person does that, everything that you empty of yourself is filled, pardon me, everything you empty from yourself is filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is fully God. It's not like God has three parts. God is, like the Holy Spirit is fully God, Jesus is fully God, and God the Father is fully God. And so when you receive that Holy Spirit, you receive uh, power. You receive strength. You receive an assurance of salvation. There's this inner assurance, the Bible teaches, an inner assurance of your salvation. You receive, um, uh, uh, I wrote this way too small. You receive guidance. This is a great way to start the year. Uh, you receive guidance in your, uh, like your daily walk. You're able to pray and, and hear from the Lord and the things that you're supposed to do. You're able to read your Bible and understand the things that your Bible is teaching you also receive something called spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, they're listed in the scripture, places like 1 Corinthians uh, 12 and 14 and other writings uh, that are in the middle part of the New Testament are lists of things like abilities or giftings or talents that you receive because of the Holy Spirit's uh, special work in your life. And they're listed out what they are. There's ones like hospitality, or leadership, or uh, administration, uh, things like evangelism, uh, generosity, uh, administration, uh, knowledge and wisdom, uh, having the right words to say at the right moment, or knowing what's going on behind the scenes, uh, like that's called discernment in the scripture, knowing what's going on inside of people uh, when they say things or they're going through things. And there's one called, that we're going to talk about today, there's one called prophecy. And prophecy is kind of this fun one that's out there, uh, because for a lot of us, we think of prophecy as being, 
I'm going to tell you what happens in the future. And that's maybe a part of what prophecy is. But when they write this in the scripture or they read this in the original scripture, like the people who wrote it and read it originally, would understand prophecy as being saying the words that God says. Whether that's speaking truth to this moment or speaking about what's going to happen in the future, those two things are equal if you're speaking the words that God says. And prophecy is a spiritual gift, uh, meaning there are people in the New Testament church, which is the church today, who have this gift to be able to say the things that God says. Or, and sometimes particular things that God has said to them, they're able to say out loud. Now, all of the gifts are particular to certain people, but also all of the gifts are, in a very minor way, expected of all the people. This is what I mean. People will say, oh, it's offering time, but I don't have the gift of generosity, so I'll let somebody else take care of that. <laughs> or, uh, I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I don't need to tell anybody about Jesus. <laughs> when you read the entirety of the New Testament, everyone is, receives these gifts in a, what I'm going to call a minor way, which is probably a terrible theological way to talk about it. But in a smaller way, you have all of these gifts. You have the ability to talk about your faith. You have the ability to be generous. Uh, you have the ability to have mercy on other people. But some people you see have that gift in a particular way, right? You just see some people and you're like, when they talk about their faith, other people who don't have faith just understand it. When I talk about my faith, people wonder if I'm having a seizure, <laughs> right? That would be, maybe you're not gifted in that, but you're still expected to be able to be used by the Holy Spirit to do the things that only God can do. And God will use your weaknesses very often to show his strength. And so you might not have the gift of prophecy. Not a lot of people want it. And there's a long history to that. If you read the Old Testament, it says clearly that if you prophesy and you're wrong, the consequence is the community throws hand-sized rocks at you until you don't move anymore, like you're dead. So it's kind of a fun thing uh, if you want to play a game and you have like some Christian friends, you're like, hey, let's all predict something that's going to happen in the future. Who's ever wrong? We throw rocks at them, <laughs> right? Not a fun game. <laughs> but there is, when God talked about the consequences of faking a gift, he was severe in the consequences that the community needed to enact in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, nobody throws rocks at anybody. Uh, there's actually different uh, church discipline standards. Uh, but in the Old Testament, they would put to death someone who said, this is what God says, because the words of God are so radically important. And we see that in, uh, like, John chapter 1. Uh, the Gospel of John is written by Jesus' best friend when he was on earth. And he talks about, in the beginning was the Word. And the words of God uh, took on flesh, meaning Jesus is the words of God walking around in our neighborhood. And so when we uh, speak, this is what God says, and we're incorrect, we're actually incorrect in who God is. What God speaks isn't separate from who he is. That's kind of a complicated thing to think through. But when we start talking about prophecy and start talking about saying the words that God says, 
It's a severe task or a severe responsibility for the people who follow Jesus, for the people who uh, follow God. So we're all operating in these gifts. Some of us might have the gift, a particular gift in a particular way, and some of us might not. But all of us carry this ability in a small way. Here's what that means. All of us carry this ability to say the things that God says, even if it's just in a small way. You might not ever be given the gift of being able to tell what the future is. Uh, Imagine that that is a terrifying gift (laughs) to say, hey, God told me this, and then I'm going to say it out loud and then see if it happens. Because then people are asking you about the NBA championships in June, which is an easy prophecy again, right? LeBron, all right, the... I didn't get any amens there. That was strange. Nobody believes in LeBron anymore. All right. (laughs) I believe in his hairline. (laughs) When a prophet tells other people what God says, they don't just enter into that on their own. They don't just enter into that and say, hey, I've decided I have the gift of prophecy. And we see this especially in the Old Testament. There's two groups of prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, like the former prophets and the latter prophets. Former prophets are people like Moses, Joshua, uh, people at the beginning of the Old Testament. Then the middle of the Old Testament, there's a lot of poems and songs. And then the end of the Old Testament, there's something called the latter prophets. And those latter prophets are ones who spoke God's words to God's people when God's people weren't listening to the things that God was saying. In their country at their time, there wasn't a lot of people even wondering if God had anything to say to the way that they were living and what was going on in their world. And at that time, God called people and he said, you are going to be the one who speaks to the people. You are going to, he hit restart on these people's lives. People were minding their own business. Sometimes they were priests. Sometimes they were just regular people. Sometimes they were working religiously. Sometimes they weren't working religiously. And he would pull them out and say, you are going to say these things to the people. And over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Ezekiel. There's a good chance if you're like, I'm going to read my Bible and you open it to the middle, you're going to hit either like the book of Psalms because that's the biggest. But if you move a little bit to the right, you're going to hit either Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Because like preachers today, they never shut up. They talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. And so there was a lot of writing down going on uh, when they were trying to figure out what this person has to say. And if you read the Bible, they all talked in poems. Uh, So it's very, like, the short sentences and short lines that takes up a lot of space in the middle of your Bible. I will not be speaking in a poem today. Um, So I am not near the prophet that Isaiah is. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to read through this, and we're going to see... I want to talk about when God called Isaiah. Because I would bet that when we talk about you're gifted by God and you're called by God and God is calling you to a fresh start in what he has for you, that that's kind of an intimidating thing and you probably have a lot of the same responses that these Old Testament prophets did. And it's not a new thing. And maybe we can find some comfort. Maybe we can find some encouragement and some inspiration in the way that these at their end of their life, we would say they were great men of God. 
But at the beginning of their life, they're just normal people like you and me. And all of a sudden, God moved in their life, hit the restart button, and everything changed. Uh, this is how uh, this section begins, the first four verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, oh, I should say this. Let me hit the brakes. This is 740 uh, B.C. Uh, so if you are into history and stuff like that, that probably matters to you. The rest of you are like, I don't even understand what that means. In, before Jesus, they counted years backwards. It was amazing, but they knew when Jesus was coming, so they're like, oh, I can't wait. No, that's a lie. Uh, <laughs> they measured years by the kings, and so this was the year that King Uzziah died. What we know is that was 740-ish years before uh, Jesus was born, because he was really born between 3 and 5 B.C., because God doesn't, he's not born on schedule. He's born when he wants to, and so he showed up three to five years early. Uh, when uh, this happens, the nation uh, that's kind of taking over the world is called Assyria, uh, like Syria we have today, but with an A at the beginning, and it exists where Iraq is today, basically, and they're kind of expanding and taking everything over, and Isaiah prophesies, uh, all the prophets would prophesy in Israel or in Judah because they had this fight and they kind of split their country into a northern part and a southern part and they had different kings. Isaiah is mostly in Israel. When you're in the, where the nation of Israel is today, you know there's a ton of conflict. In their day, there was even more because Israel was the intersection of the world. Unless you were taking a ship across the Mediterranean, if you wanted to get from the east to Africa or to Egypt, the highways all went through Israel. When God brought his people into the promised land, it wasn't just a random place. It was bringing them into the biggest, most important intersection on the planet at the time. And so Assyria, if they're taking over the world, you know what they want to take over? The best part, the main intersection, the place where you will make the most money from goods and services trafficking through your region. So whenever there was a superpower that seemed to be growing, people would tend to get nervous if they lived in the main intersection of the world. And so this is 740 BC. King Isaiah, who you never heard of before this morning, has died. Imagine how you would feel about that. You have no idea if he's a good king or a bad king, and I'm not going to tell you. So just to make up your own feelings. <laughs> and then uh, Isaiah starts saying the things that God's going to say 740 years before Jesus. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim, which are like uh, creatures in heaven, not angels, creatures, each with six wings, maybe hybrid angels, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with the other two, they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. This is actually like, if you want to talk about, I'm going to stop there for just a second. If you want to talk about what heaven is like, this is the picture you should look at. We always think like, golden roads and hanging out and green hills and you get to enjoy yourself but in the throne room of heaven there are these creatures flying around with six wings covering themselves and flying 
God is sitting there, and the train from his robe is filling the whole room. It's a little bit intimidating. And the angels, or the seraphim, sorry, that are singing, are singing this song that only has two lines to it, but they sing it so loud that the doors shake. Like some of you grabbed earplugs at the table on the way in, and we're just trying to give you a preview of heaven. We're just trying to let you know, if you're like, I ain't into loud music, you might want to choose hell. <laughs> I wish you were videotaping that, but you can tweet that. We'll see how that goes over. In the throne room, I'm sure in your part of heaven it'll be very quiet, but in, in the throne room, it's so loud that the doors and the thresholds are shaking, and the volume, like it says, the sound of their voices the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. The volume creates a smoke that fills the temple that's already filled with the train from God's rope. So it's like this smoke show that's happening, and every now and then you get a glimpse of this six-winged freak show that's covering itself and flying around, screaming a song so loud. Holy, God is holy, God is holy. How would you react most, or sorry, Isaiah reacts in the correct way. He says, woe to me, which is Bible for, oh, I cried. I am ruined. <laughs> He's anticipating his own death. Like, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. He's admitting that he says things that he shouldn't say. And I have lived among a people of unclean lips. So when Isaiah plays video games and he's got his headset on, he's with the same guys that I play video games with. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah reacts. Like the first thing that happens is Isaiah gets this encounter with God. The second thing that happens is the encounter with God. In that moment, Isaiah realizes the vast difference between him and God. It's like if you're a musician and you go to a concert or a symphony or a show and they play and you're like, wow, I am terrible. Or if, if you play a sport on Saturday morning with your friends and then you buy a ticket and go watch someone else and you're like, I am genuinely terrible at this, right? It's this reaction, except it's not just what he does, it's who he is. He sees God and then he goes, oh, snap, and like starts backing up and bowing down and not just because it's a formality, but it's because this, it, like, there's something in him that realizes how far it is from him to God. And in that, uh, Isaiah repents, or Isaiah has a reaction of, his, of realizing his own sin, his own underwhelmingness compared to God's overwhelmingness. And at, one, at that moment, verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hands, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. Ah, so maybe there's smoke coming from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. There's, this is this beautiful moment that happens when the overwhelming everythingness of God causes us to realize our underwhelming, insufficient, maybe close to nothingness, and then that changes 
when God, through the seraphim, approaches us. Isaiah doesn't say, I need to back up and get better at this so that I can come back in. God approaches Isaiah, the unclean Isaiah, so that the purity of God changes the impurity of Isaiah. So, like, that concept is what I base my entire life on. There are those who believe that, uh, like, there's this process of understanding a lot, like, pastor world is buzzing about this right now, if, if that happens. Uh, the seraphim and pastor world are all talking about this, but uh, that there's this process, and it, it's catchy because pastors come up with this. They all start with the same letter. We apologize for being cheesy, but uh, there's a concept of how you believe in God is that you have to start believing in God or be behaving the way God says. Then you believe in what God says, and then you can belong to what God's people. And what we have done at the Grove is said, well, we think that we can change that around so that you can belong and be a part of who the people of God are. And then through that, you'll start to understand what we believe or what the people of God believe. And then you, you'll take on those beliefs. And then those beliefs will actually change your behavior. Uh, the result is we have some very poor behaving people who are Christians. And we've decided that that's a better way that God moves because God seems to move towards the unclean. There's like... The, the reason that that matters is because there's a temptation in Christianity to not hang out or not be friends or not interact with a world that acts like the world. And, and like, I think there's examples we can point at, but I think that's a temptation for all of us at least a little bit. When we're in situations or around people that are very negative or very uh, worldly, there's a temptation or a feeling like maybe maybe this is affecting me. And what the scripture teaches is that the holiness of God and if the power of God exists in you, that is the thing that affects others. That's why Jesus was able to sit down and eat with sinners all the time. That's why Jesus was accused of being a bad person uh, and, and the followers of Jesus were accused of being drunks because they would hang out with people who were and they assumed that because of association they were just like them but they understood that this is how they become just like us and hopefully just like Christ because that is what God does in a person's life. And so Isaiah is there and a seraphim flies up to him, touches his lips. And then after he's made pure by God, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Do you see the difference between the two things Isaiah said? The first thing Isaiah says is, oh snap, there's God. Let's get out of here, <laughs> right? Like I should not be around here. The second thing, when God speaks, Isaiah starts walking forwards. And God's saying, who should I send? Isaiah's like, me, I'm the one you should send. Like Isaiah changes from like shameful to like boastful, bold, arrogant. I have, Isaiah said, God just made me pure. I don't think there's anything I can't do. So Isaiah doesn't ask, where, where, are you, where are we going? Like, God, can I get some details on this? Have you had that conversation with God? God, I'd really like to know what your plan is for my life in detail, please. Isaiah says, let's go. 
He doesn't say, well, what kind of life are we talking about, God? He says, whatever God is calling, whatever, like, who, where should I go? Like, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Oh, that's, that's me. That's me, God. And he walks forward, and he's like, hey, this is, hey, hey, Seraphim, my name's Isaiah. Uh, could we, like, tone down the smoke? I can't see. Uh, right? he's, Isaiah walks into this throne room of God, and it has this change because of what God's done in his life that changes him from, recognizes his own sin and brokenness and unclean lips and unclean people, his culture and his language are poor, to God a moment later says, who do you think could go somewhere for us? And Isaiah's like, I can go somewhere. I'm, okay. God says, uh, verse 9, he said, go and tell this to people. Be ever hearing but never understanding. And this is where the poetry stuff starts. So some of you might get lost here. Some of you will be like, oh, I finally understand what's happening. Uh, be hearing, but never understanding. Be seeing, but never per perceiving. Make, their heart, make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn to be healed. So he's telling Isaiah, go and speak to the people. So much that they develop a callous against what you're saying. So much that they're able to block you out. Otherwise, they might turn and repent. God is saying, like God is saying, we're going to tell them to turn and repent so much that they don't. And I turned to God and I said, for how long do you want me to say this? Uh, Isaiah says, then I said, for how long, Lord? And God answers, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land and it will be laid waste, but as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they are cut down, the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So Isaiah has this calling from God. Go and tell people what I'm saying so much that they don't listen. Be so bold among your people that they go, this is a religious nut job. I'm not going to listen to what he says. And Isaiah says, how long should I do that? And God tells Isaiah that the Assyrians are actually going to come and overtake his country, destroy it, and deport all of his people, 90% of his people, the ones who managed to stay alive after the takeover. He tells Isaiah that the success in your ministry will be noticed when your country is destroyed. It's kind of an upsetting thing to think through when Isaiah has this, here's your call, here's God changing him. What do you want me to do, God? I want you to preach to people who aren't going to listen to you and keep doing it until their lives are completely ruined. And then they'll all leave. And they'll all be gone. And that's how you know that what you've been doing is the right thing to do. Like if God called you and you were like, hey God, I want to do what you want. And he said, I want you to tell the people around you or I want you to live for Jesus so boldly that the people around you genuinely think there's something wrong with you but not like in an insulting way, more in an apathetic way. 
Like, they just don't care because you do these things. Like, you're not just a Christian who shows up on Sunday. You're, like, praying, and you're reading your Bible, and you're, you're even fasting. Like, sometimes you don't eat, like some kind of a religious nut job. You don't gossip about people, which makes you boring. And they just start ignoring you at your workplace uh, or ignoring whatever it is that you have going on because they've heard it so much or because it's always the same, which we would call integrity. (laughs) And you'll know that you're doing the right thing because the people around you who have no interest in the things of God, their lives are going to deteriorate to the point where basically it's over. And if the people around you, or maybe even the culture around you, is utterly destroyed and ends up terrible, you know that you've followed me and done what I've said. You wouldn't think, hey God, that's a great calling, right? Hey God, I'm really excited to do the things that you say. Nobody wants that calling. We want the one that's going up and to the right. We want the one where eventually I'm going to end up like, I want to be a preacher on TV, right? I want to be like such a big church that they video camera my face and put it on the screen. I don't actually want that, but now now that I have HD, bad choice. (laughs) But but when, like, we're all thinking, like, when God calls you something, I want it to grow. I want it to be big. I want it to be successful. And God seems to say, you're going to have an unresponsive audience until they hit rock bottom. An unresponsive audience until they hit rock bottom. The only hope that's in the statement is that when they hit rock bottom, they're still going to have 10%. It's kind of insulting, but he says, they're going to have this stump of what used to be. And from that stump, I can grow something really, really great. That Isaiah, you're going to preach at people that eventually are going to be chopped off like a tree, fell, that's going to be gone, and all that's left in their life is this stump that nobody really pays attention to. We just kind of think is ugly. If it's in our yard, we dig it up. But out of that stump, I can still make something great. I can grow, and you've seen this, new trees out of the old stumps. New and unique and bright and wonderful things out of what's left. But you're going to pastor them or prophesy to them down to that point of what's left. There might be like a a challenge in your life where you need to have the same response that Isaiah did. Like if you have no relationship with God or you've never thought about who God is, then the right reaction when you encounter God is Isaiah's first reaction to back up and go oh dang God is bigger and more powerful and everything good more than I anticipated and then it isn't you don't need to figure out how to start behaving you don't need to figure out how to start doing God things or how God people act God actually approaches us And we just surrender ourselves to God. And if you're wondering, have I surrendered myself to God, you can look at the response of Isaiah. When God calls, Isaiah says, yes. Without question, without clarification, God says, who's going to do this? Isaiah says, I'm going to do this. Isaiah 
after he's encountered God, is the guy who steps forward when everyone in the line is stepping backwards. If you're wondering, have I surrendered everything to God? A measurement, not all, but a measurement could be, are you able to say yes to God? Like if you are thinking about New Year's resolutions, saying yes to everything that God says to you might be a good place to start. And I'm not sure that God's going to like give you a vision of his throne room and you're going to go in and seraphim and everything like that. But I also believe that God speaks to us through the Bible, through his scripture. And so when you read the scripture, you can make a new resolution where you say, if I read something in scripture, I'm going to say yes. This is probably the most exciting, like eating healthy, losing weight, meh, right? Everybody's doing that. Well, everybody's doing that till the 10th. But, but if you said, I'm going to try saying yes. Like I'm going to read something in the Bible, and the Bible's going to say, love people who hate you. Ah, crap, right? Like I, I was hoping not to read that till later. I wanted the ones that say, like, happy, like God loves me. I'll say yes to that. But, but God says something, and you're like, ah, oh, that's not. Forgive people. Uh, love people. Uh, don't. Uh, don't ruin your life, don't uh, get drunk, don't uh, have sexual relations outside of your marriage. All of a sudden, all of those things, you're like, well, I don't want to say yes to those. Turn the page. Let me find something else. But what if you just backed up and said, whatever, I'm just going to say yes, and I'm going to see what happens. I would imagine, because the scripture teaches this, that you would have the best year of your life. And it might not mean that you're going to be up and to the right. Like some things in your life might get harder, not easier. You might have to have some conversations with people that you never anticipated or never wanted to have. You might need to forgive some people that you've been carrying around for a very long time and it's become a part of who you are. But the challenge, I think, that Isaiah gives us is that the measurement of your surrender to God is not like your behavior. Your measurement is your ability to step forward and say yes. I believe, I really believe this, that God was saying, who shall go for us, whom will I send, the whole time. Isaiah didn't hear it until he was made pure. I believe that God is saying that still today. That God is saying to you, I have plans for your life. I have purpose for your life. I have people in your workplace or in your family or in your relationship circle or in your neighborhood who I love and I want to have a relationship with them. Who will go and be my feet and be my hands and be my voice? Who's going to do that? And the people who surrender to God say, I'll go. Where are we going again? Oh, how long are we going to have to do this? Oh, okay. <laughs> Just that saying yes to God becomes a measurement of God's work in our life. Not a measurement of our behavior, not a measurement of our strength, not a measurement of how awesome we are. It becomes a measurement of how God has taken over for us. I put in the bulletin each week these next steps, and that's the first next step. If you want to take what you've heard today and do something about it, the step is, I'm going to say yes. And saying yes for the whole year is probably terrifying. Maybe you do it for this afternoon, <laughs> right? Or on, on the car ride home. 
or, or maybe you're brave and you try it for a week. And you're worried you're going to turn into like a Jim Carrey character, like a Jim Carrey character in that movie Liar Liar, uh, where he couldn't lie to people, and all of a sudden you have to tell the truth all the time, right? And it becomes a comedic situation. But if you say, "What's going to happen if I say yes to what God has for me?" Let's see what happens. And I think the second step is that is to be able to see the stump in people's lives around you, because. No matter how bad or how close to rock bottom somebody's got, if you're alive, then God has love for you, God has a plan for you, God has a purpose for you. If you can imagine in your mind the person you know who's furthest from God, the ability of a Christian is to see the fingerprints, to see the image, to see the reflection of God in that person. And then... You begin to love that person because you can see God in that person. It's kind of a condescending thing to say you can see the stump that's left of that person. <laughs> it's much more pretty to say you can see God's image because we're all created in God's image. But being able to see the stumps around you is being able to see the potential around you. Like we might think, some of us, half of this room, not the other half, that a field of stumps is ugly, right? They've harvested the trees, they've taken them down, and all we've got left is stumps. But what God sees is the remains of something that can still be made into something wonderful, which I think all of us can see that, that even though the situation right now doesn't look that good as we're driving down the road and there's no trees there, we still see that there's a potential for a forest to be beautiful in that place. Don't just take this and go, wow, God is cool. Try one of those two things. I would, like, I almost dare you to decide to say, I'm going to say yes to God. Choose your own time frame and see how that works. And take a fresh start. If you try it for a day, you get a fresh start tomorrow. Because in this game, you get to hit restart all the time. You say to God, wow, I am an unclean person. I live among unclean people. And the seraphim comes, touches you with a coal. Ding, new life. All right, let's play this game again. Let me pray for us. Let's stand. Jesus, we want to thank you for new life. We want to thank you for moving in us in a particular way that gives us power and strength and a fullness of the Spirit. We want to pray, Lord, that you would give us your eyes to see ourselves and to see you. Because when we see you in our own eyes, we're overwhelmed with our insufficiency in your infinity. But when we see ourselves with your eyes, we see you in us. And you, your presence in our life is what allows us to take that step forward is what allows us to say, I'm right here, send me. It's what allows us to be bold in saying yes to what God has to say to us. And God, many of us may never experience what it is to, like, to be a fortune-telling, or a, sorry, a future-telling prophet. But we have your word, and we know your word, and so we pray that you would input like, your power into us in such a way that we're able to speak your words. They were able to tell the world around us what God says. 
And sometimes that's judgment, but a lot of times that's love. A lot of times that's hope. A lot of times that's purpose and feeling. And may you approach us in such a way that we're overwhelmed by your movement towards us and that causes us to move into the world around us. May we be a people you use as individuals and as a church, as a community, and, and even in the churches in our town and in our region. May you fill us, empower us, and use us for your glory. Make something great out of what uh, ruins remain. By your grace we pray. Amen. We're going to sing a new song.